Hello, I'm Clive Johnson. Welcome to Impact, a podcast about how we can each bring about real change in the world and getting practical in making that happen. And hello, I'm Ellen Vince. A special welcome if you're listening for the first time and a big thank you to our new subscribers. Each week, we look at one aspect of how we can connect our hearts to offer healing for others with our collective intention, prayers, and meditation, and talk about the critical happenings in our world that need our attention right now, some of which may not be making the headlines where you are. And as we are coming to the end of one year and the first month of our very first month of this podcast, we thought we'd take time this week to look back over 2023 and to review some of the good news stories, some of the things where our impact has really made a difference. And before we do that, let's take a look at gratitude and what it means to us, to our communities, and to the world. So admittedly, as we listen to the world news, Sometimes it feels difficult to hold a sense of gratitude in our hearts. Hmm. However, if we look beyond the noise of the media, there are many stories that are inspiring, hopeful, and uplifting. We've gathered some of them as we look back in the year, as Clive said. So I took a dive into researching gratitude and all that it implies. There's a plethora of information out there for us to absorb, and I highly recommend a Google or two on the subject. So let's take a look at what a state of gratitude does, as I said, for an individual, for a community, and for the universal unified field. And and one thing that uh, Alan found, which I particularly like, and it, it resonates for me, is the, the teaching of uh, the founder of Ziva, a well-known meditation training site, Emily Fletcher, who talks about uh, gratitude as being like a natural antidepressant. Uh, so rather than taking your your tablets every morning, uh, the doctor might prescribe, if you have a gratitude practice every day, that can actually have the same effect. And this isn't just wishful thinking. It's really been proven that gratitude causes the neurotransmitters that are mainly responsible for our positive emotions, dopamine and serotonin, to be activated enhancing our mood immediately and making us feel happy from the inside. So actually getting into a a regular daily practice of giving thanks actually helps our brains, our neural pathways to strengthen. And ultimately this creates um, a more permanent grateful state. Other research that uh, we picked up on uh, here from the book Grateful Brain by Alex Korb who says that our brain is actually unable to focus on positive and negative information at the same time. So again, if we are training ourselves to be more focused on the positive emotions and thoughts, we should in turn reduce our own stress, anxiety, and general feelings of depression and apprehension. And in an article in the Greater Good magazine entitled What Gets in the Way of Gratitude?, Research has proven that gratitude is essential for our happiness. Although in our lives these days, in the Western world, in the the modern era, gratitude has been turned into something that's thought of as being more of a feeling rather than something that actually involves action, a sense of giving back, um, a sense of really acknowledging and receiving 
a favour paid forward by another person. Just as gratitude is seen as the queen of the virtues, ingratitude is seen as the king of the vices. And we might turn to Deepak Chopra as well, who's written quite extensively on this subject. He says that when you make the choice to shift to a place of gratitude, you open new pathways in your brain. Think of grateful thoughts as little messengers that transmit positive energy throughout your entire body. In turn, more pathways open up and more positive energy flows and infuses your very being. Ultimately, you become your healthiest, brightest, most vibrant self. Seems like a really great way to mm. become your most vibrant self, doesn't it? Definitely. definitely. <laughs> Important work. Yes. Robert Emmons, who is considered uh, one of the world's leading scientific experts on gratitude, says that gratitude has two key components, which he describes in a greater good essay, why gratitude is good. And quote, first he writes, it's an affirmation of goodness. We affirm that there are good things in the world, gifts and benefits we've received. And the second part of gratitude, he explains, we recognize that the source of this goodness is outside of ourselves. That's a really key point. We acknowledge that other people are even higher powers if you're a spiritual person, gave us many gifts, big and small, to help us achieve the goodness in our lives. He sees the social dimension as being especially important to gratitude. And quote, I see it as a relationship strengthening emotion because it requires us to see how we've been supported and affirmed by other people. Mm. I love that. Mm. I love thinking that it's a relationship strengthening emotion. And since gratitude encourages us not only to appreciate gifts, but to repay them or pay them forward, a sociologist named George Simmel called it the moral memory of mankind. Hmm. Hmm. So this is how gratitude may have evolved by strengthening bonds between members of the same species who mutually helped each other out. I just love this whole concept and to think of it in this way that the moral memory of mankind is founded in gratitude. And I guess if we are thinking that, uh, as a number of us do, I know I do, if we, if we think of our intentions as being prayer, uh, we do make a bit of a distinction there. We will be making a bit of a distinction there. But essentially, prayer, that there is a, a universe or a God involved, it makes sense, doesn't it, that if we actually ask for something... <laughs> And mm -hmm. that prayer or that intention is answered that if we don't express gratitude, if we don't acknowledge with pleasure something happening, that it's a little bit perverse, if nothing else, if we continue to ask for, for other things to happen. So <laughs> definitely about relationship, I think, even on that kind of cosmic level, if you like. So we might ask how right. we can bring about a shift in our in our own mindset as well as within our world to be more in the state of giving thanks. And this really comes down to where it all begins, a question of vibration. You've probably heard before, uh, certainly we will speak about it, that everything 
having a vibration. Everything in existence, everything that is made up of energy, this interconnected web of electromagnetic vibrational frequencies, anything that animates, in other words, right down to the atomic and subatomic level. And as you may know, the faster something vibrates, the higher frequency it has. Now, there's actually been at least one attempt to put together um, a kind of guide to the frequencies of different emotions, a so-called emotional frequency chart. Uh, this was put together following research by the psychiatrist, Dr. David R. Hawkins, and uh, it's presented in his book, Power Versus Force. Um, one of my favorite books. My ah, I don't think I've read that one actually. Oh, it's fantastic! <laughs> we definitely mm -hmm. have to put the one in the uh, in the show show notes. I mean, mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. I'll put that on my New Year's reading list. <laughs> <laughs> no great surprise, of course. The highest frequency is associated with love, but gratitude comes very, very close behind that, according to the chart. What he calls appreciation vibrates at around. Uh, 540 megahertz. So that's a very high frequency. And another researcher, this time biophysicist Glenn Rain, has found that a state of heart coherence can actually repair, this is incredible, and activate our DNA. So in other words, when we are having positive intentions and we are expressing gratitude, we actually enable ourselves to heal. And one other fascinating fact that uh, Ellen unearthed, which uh, really is mind-boggling. This uh, comes from the University of Kassel in Germany, where researchers found that while the average person emits 20 photons of light per second, someone in a state of loving-kindness or appreciation emits a phenomenal 100,000 photons per second. So when we talk about Isn't this... Amazing. <laughs> it is. <laughs> this exponential gap um, difference. There you are. That's being, being shown in the laboratory. Exactly. So let's focus our attention and intentions on a state of gratitude for all that has happened in 2023 and put some very high vibrations into the world. Absolutely. You're listening to Impact, a podcast for anyone who believes in making a difference in the world through prayer, healing, and sending intention out into the world. Join us as we focus attention on where healing is needed right now. Together, we change our world. So welcome back. And rather than focus on what's going on in the, in the world this week, we thought we'd take a look back over the 12 months of this year and, and pick from each month something where we've seen a real change in, 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 in fortune, as it were, something to be really grateful for. So going way back, first of all, to January, and this story was being reported at the time in Nigeria. Gunmen armed with AK-47 rifles had abducted more than 30 people from a train station in Nigeria's southern Edo state. Some people had been shot in the attack, and at the time, the military and the police, as well as quite well-established vigilante network uh, in Nigeria, were intensely searching for the kidnapped. 
insecurity is a real problem in that country with Islamist um, jihadist insurgencies in the northeast, bandits in the northwest, and often there being reports of clashes, kidnappings, and um, villages being ransacked in other parts of the country. Just two weeks later, so this was before the end of January, there had been good news. Officials announced the release of the remaining hostages following that kidnapping. And it was also announced at the time that seven suspects had been arrested, including two traditional rulers. The exact motives for the kidnapping were unconfirmed, although it appeared to be financially motivated. Quite a remarkable turnaround within a couple of weeks. Thankfully. Mm. And February saw the end of Marburg virus disease in Equatorial Guinea. An outbreak of Marburg virus disease, which is also called MVD, was confirmed on February 13th in the northwest part of Equatorial Guinea in the province of Kitem. And I hope I'm saying that right. I apologize if I'm not. So this was the first Marburg epidemic in the country and the first time the disease was detected. But in June, there was an update. They announced the end of the virus epidemic following a total of one confirmed case, nine deaths, and 16 suspected cases reported from two communities in the province. The national health authorities, with support from the Africa CDC and other partners, they established an epidemic response mechanism to effectively control any spread of the virus in Guinea and other affected countries. The mandatory 42-day countdown was triggered after the last case tested negative. Mm. So that's well, good. They handled that, that well. They certainly did. They um, perhaps had learned the lessons of the COVID lockdown, the importance of acting very quickly there, I imagine. Yes, let's hope so. Yeah. And then turning to March, and this was really quite a remarkable story, where two traditional adversaries started to talk to each other again, Saudi Arabia and Iran. The two countries announced that they'd reached an agreement to re-establish diplomatic ties following seven years of hostility. And this is two major powers and, and very wealthy powers in the whole of the Middle East could have very wide-ranging implications. Riyadh and Tehran, this is back in March, uh, said that they planned to reopen their embassies within two months of the agreement, which had been mediated by China. They also said that they planned to re-implement a security pact, which had been agreed 22 years previously, in which the two countries had agreed to cooperate on such things as terrorism, drug smuggling, and money laundering, as well as trying to revive trade and um, an exchange of technology know-how. They gave themselves quite an ambitious target at this um, agreement, which was reached in Beijing, to prove that they were serious uh, about normalizing ties. And this was all happening at a time when Iran was increasingly being isolated on the world stage, and also Saudi Arabia has been showing signs of changing its foreign, foreign policy in favor of diplomacy instead of confrontation. Now, just a month later in April, remembering that they'd only, the two countries had only given themselves two months to, to show progress, there was a significant step that had been taken when 
diplomatic ties were formally restored. And then in September, there was an exchange of the ambassadors. So Saudi Arabia's ambassador traveled to Iran and the ambassador for the Islamic Republic landed in Riyadh. Embassies have reopened in both capitals and also, remarkably, the foreign minister of Iran, uh, Hossein Amir Abdullah, has even spoken about unity and dialogue in a public speech during his first visit to Saudi Arabia, saying that bilateral ties were progressing in the right direction. At the same time, Saudi Arabia has restored ties with Iran's ally, Syria, and ramped up a push for peace in Yemen, where Saudi Arabia for many years has led a military coalition against the Houthi forces, which are Iranian-backed. So there's one example of why this cooperation and dialogue is so important. That was a good one. Mm. (laughs) In April, India became the world's most populous nation while ranking well as a climate change role model. So India overtook China as the world's most populous nation, according to UN data released. And so India's population was 1.428 billion, (laughs) slightly higher than China's 1.425. And it's estimated to increase at a faster rate than China. Um, China's population growth is slowing, but India's isn't. So they should keep surpassing them for a while. Um, The Climate Change Performance Index for 2023 report was released and India secured the eighth position in the index, which is two positions up from the last edition. And I thought this was interesting that no country was strong enough in all index categories to achieve an overall very high rating. Mm -hmm. Thus, the top three places, one through three, are vacant. (laughs) So (laughs) that makes India... (laughs) No one's on the podium. So that makes India amongst the top five countries. So India is eighth, the United Kingdom is 11th, and Germany is 16th. And they're the only three G20 countries that are among the high performers in the CCPI of 2023. So India ranks among the best of the G20 countries. Well done, India, for showing most of the rest of the world that it can be done. It can be done, definitely, definitely. So coming through now to May and another story from Africa, this time from Cameroon, where 30 women had been abducted by separatist rebels for protesting illegal taxes that had been imposed on them. Uh, It was announced later that month that the women had been released from Babanki, a farming village in the northwest region of the country, uh, close to the border with Nigeria. And at the time, it was reported the women had been taken to hospitals where they were being treated for injuries and supported for trauma. The separatists had been collecting, this is extortion, monthly payments from children, women and men, imposing taxes on couples before they got married, and forcing families to pay $1,000 to bury their relatives in what is one of the world's poorest countries. So a good news story there that those women had been freed and were once again safe. Absolutely, thankfully. And in June, practical steps were taken to contain a large methane leakage in Turkmenistan. 
So massive methane leakage was a major threat to global warming. Um, it's home to the Darvaza crater in the Karakum Desert, a massive molten pit that has spewed flames and noxious gases for decades. So because of that, Turkmenistan has the world's worst record when it comes to climate warming methane leakage. And um, the country's president unveiled a roadmap for actions aimed at tackling the country's massive gas leaks. And help from the U.S. was committed, including Washington providing much-needed investment in the country's aging oil and gas infrastructure. So last year, in 2022, the methane leaks from Turkmenistan's two main fossil fuel fields caused more global warming than the entire carbon emissions of the UK. Climate scientists say that molecule by molecule, methane is much more harmful to our climate compared with CO2. So according to estimates, having the number of methane super emitters like this over the next two years would be just as effective as fitting every car in Europe with an electric engine. While the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPPC, say that a 45% reduction in methane emissions by 2030 would prevent a global temperature increase of 0.3 Celsius over the next 20 years. So this makes the reduction of methane emissions among humanity's best chances for limiting global warming. Mm. And in December, COP28, which we just talked about a few episodes ago, um, Turkmenistan said that it would join the Global Methane Pledge led by the U.S. and European Union. And the agreement includes more than 150 nations that have promised to reduce global emissions of the potent greenhouse gas 30% by the end of this decade. So foreign petroleum engineers are now on the ground in Turkmenistan laying the groundwork for a plan to curb the nation's giant methane emissions. And technical experts are working closely with state-owned oil and gas company, according to a Bloomberg report. I knew nothing about this this uh, huge leak until about a year ago. And uh, it's extraordinary, given how critical it, it, it is. Uh, yes. I mean, that, those are in, incredible statistics that yes. they talk about, you know. Ex exactly. Wow. Yeah. Really wonderful that Turkmenistan has opened itself to the world, essentially, and invited yes. in support and is really addressing this. And also the, the state oil and mm -hmm. gas company as well, which uh, you know, often they have had a lot of power in preventing uh, mm -hmm. this kind of work. And another good news story that actually came out of COP28 as well, isn't it, actually, that we... <coughs> we uh, <laughs> yes, yes. We, we, we should uh, give thanks for. So working our way through the year, I think we're about halfway now, aren't we, coming to July? Mm-hmm. And this has been an ongoing issue, certainly in my own prayers and intention focus. This has been something that's been ongoing since early on in the Russia-Ukraine war. The agreement for grain to be supplied to particularly African nations that are desperately in need. And back in July, there was a summit uh, held in St. Petersburg in Russia, between Russia and African nations that agreed um, exports of grain and had called for a peaceful coexistence between the warring nations, Russia and Ukraine, at least in this respect, to allow grain to be exported through the Black Sea. So the president of the, the African Union was speaking 
at this summit, which had been attended by 50 African leaders. And Russian President Vladimir Putin promised Russian grain support to Africa following its withdrawal from a previous grain deal agreement uh, earlier in the month. By November, uh, it was being reported that this agreement was actually being put into place. Russia's agricultural minister said that Moscow had begun free shipments of grain, which totaled up to 200,000 tons to six African countries. And uh, according to a statement on Telegram, Dmitry Patrushev said that ships headed for Burkina Faso and Somalia, Somalia had already left Russian ports uh, with additional shipments to Eritrea, Zimbabwe, Mali, and the Central African Republic soon to follow. And in August, an oil slick disaster off of Yemen was averted. So the UN began siphoning 1 million barrels of oil from a decaying supertanker off the coast of Yemen that was thought could crack and explode at any moment. The supertanker, the FSO Safer, held four times the amount of oil spilled by the Exxon Valdez. If not saved, a massive spill from the ship would have a devastating effect on marine life in the Red Sea and the livelihoods that depended on it. So the FSO Safer had been moored off of Yemen's west coast for more than 30 years and was being maintained prior to the conflict in the country, but it was now judged beyond repair. So there was an update. The, the rescue took place and it prevented the immediate threat of a massive spill in the Red Sea. And the UN Secretary Antonio Guterres welcomed the news of the successful transfer of oil aboard the FSO to a replacement vessel, thus avoiding what could have been a monumental, really monumental mm -hmm. environmental and humanitarian catastrophe. Wow, I hadn't heard that story. No, and it's mind boggling again, isn't it, to think that, you know, this had four times the amount of oil. <laughs> and imagine oh. the, 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 the uh, oh. disaster of the Exxon Valdez. If this had, had spilled into the Red Sea, which again is very important coral territory as well, it's just mind-boggling. And a consequence of a war. Oh, you know that this had this ship had been left moored, and of yes. course because of the the danger and the inability to to deal with the salvage operation, um, it really came to this critical point before action was taken. So grateful that they could they could salvage that. E exactly. I mean, it was a, apparently mm -hmm. a de quite a delicate operation. Well, I, I'm a, <laughs> imagining it's what it's going to be, but it was a it was a real touching operation. So again, a, mm -hmm. a mm -hmm. major, major world disaster that was averted there. And in September, again, our friend, we often, often uh, hear his name, spoken the UN Secretary General, Antonio Guterres, mm -hmm welcoming the opening of the Bab al-Hawa border crossing uh, in northern Syria, border crossing with Turkey, following an agreement with the Syrian government. There are still, after more than a decade, more than 4 million, or I should say around 4 million um, refugees living in that rebel-held enclave uh, of Syria, close to the border, totally reliant on aid and medicine deliveries, a real vital 
lifeline. And this this corridor, as it were, had been created back in 2014, but had been closed for several months this year. Now, through uh, November, we were receiving an update that Syria had extended its permission, its agreement to the United Nations to deliver aid uh, into these refugee settlements via two border crossings into Turkey through at least until February next year. And the UN said that already this year, more than uh, 4,000 trucks carrying UN aid had used the Bab al-Hawa, Bab al-Salam, and al-Rai border crossings. So it was, it, was, it was striking me here that if you picture a map of the Mediterranean, the east coast of the Mediterranean, you have Syria, uh, pretty much the, the north side of that coast, and Gaza of the south. And at both the most northerly extreme and the southerly extreme, there are hundreds of thousands of refugees reliant on um, aid deliveries through the border crossings in, in what are mm. very obviously unstable conditions. Quite, quite a terrifying thought, really. But reason to be hopeful here that, in the case of Syria at least, and for the short term at least, those border crossings are open and not just hundreds but thousands of trucks are getting through with that vital aid. 4,200 trucks mm. is a huge amount mm. of aid. And I'm thankful that that could get through, but to think that that's probably not all the aid that is needed, it's mind-blowing how yeah. much the refugees are in need. So, yes, very thankful that and they get through. And many have been there for you know more than 10 years now. Oh, my gosh. Living in tents and makeshift accommodation. Um mm. Often outside of the gaze of the world, of course, because our attention, right. understandably, has been directed much uh, further south uh, to Gaza right. and Israel. Yeah. Yep. Oh, well, on to October. There was a new pledge from Nations for Coral Reef Protection. So the Center for Global Discovery and Conservation Science in the Yuli Ann Wrigley Global Futures Laboratory <laughs> and a leader of the largest coral reef monitoring program on the planet found a study that there was a strong correlation between what has been dubbed over tourism and significant coral reef degradation based on extensive research off Hawaii. So Coral reefs, as you were talking about just a minute ago, the importance of them, Clive, mm -hmm. found in over 100 countries and territories globally, underpin social biodiversity and provide important economic, social, recreational, and cultural benefits. 800 species of reef-building corals create habitats that harbor an estimated 32% of all named marine species excluding microbes and fungi, 91% of marine species remain undescribed. 30% hmm. of fish are associated with tropical reef environments. And recent estimates suggest that more than 90% of coral reef species have not been named and that total reef species numbers exceed 800,000. So coral reefs have come under increasing pressure as a result of rising marine pollution. 
destructive coastal development and fishing fleets, but they're also suffering because of rising sea temperatures, which cause coral to expel colorful algae living inside them. And it's a phenomenon known as bleaching. So scientists predict that even if global warning, warming is maintained at 1.5 degrees Celsius, up to 90% of coral reefs might disappear by 2050 due to prolonged ocean heat waves. In October, at the Singapore conference, countries pledged to raise $12 million to fund coral reef protection. This Alliance of Nations said at the conference that members would raise this money to protect coral reefs from threats, like we talked about as pollution, overfishing, but experts warned the funding would only be a drop in the ocean unless broader climate risks are addressed. The International Coral Reef Initiative, ICRI, said it would secure public and private investment to help conserve and restore coral ecosystems, which sustain a quarter of the world's marine species and more than a billion people. So coral protection and restoration is central to the UN decade and ecosystem restoration geared towards the restoration of degraded and destroyed ecosystems to enhance food security, clean our air quality, secure water supply, address the climate crisis, and protect habitats that support life on earth as we know it. Mm. And the UN um, development also puts a spotlight on coral reefs to inspire advances in science technology and to improve ocean health. So this may be a drop in the ocean, as they say, for what's needed, but it is a step in the right direction. Wow, we need this. We do, we do. I was gonna say, perhaps we need a paddle in the right direction, but (laughs) yes, keep the metaphor going there. We need more than a drop, right? Oh, well, again, just to to appreciate the vital importance of protecting coral uh, for so many species, but also for for human uh, well-being as well. Exactly. Many many, uh, communities reliant on it. Now, coming... of the world's marine species and more than a billion people. It, it's extraordinary, isn't it? That's mind-boggling. Mm-hmm. Again. So we're coming nearer to uh, where we are now, and this is a story that, that is still fresh in my mind. And I have to say, this was definitely when I heard the um, the outcome of this. It was one real moment for gratitude, and uh, as we were saying earlier, that sort of sense of appreciation. Back in November. 41 construction workers had been trapped uh, in a tunnel that they were building that had collapsed in the Indian uh, Himalayas. Um, The workers had been stuck underground working in this very hostile environment way up in the high mountains in Uttarakhand state uh, since the beginning of November and facing particularly bad weather, thunderstorms, low temperatures, which had frustrated rescue operations. I followed the rescue uh, quite a lot in the news at the time, and it was clearly being undertaken very, very carefully because there there was this huge risk that the whole tunnel would collapse. The rescuers managed to get water, light, oxygen, food, and medicines to the men whilst they were waiting for a, a permanent breakthrough through a narrow pipe. But it took a long while, and I think it took three different attempts of ways in to 
finally dig a tunnel big enough to allow them to come out. By the end of November, we learned that all 41 men had emerged, smiling, dazed, but alive from this, what must have been a a terrifying experience. Uh, They had been trapped for over 17 days. And as I say, I I think for me, this was one of the the most happiest stories I, I remember from this this past year, maybe because it's quite recent, that um, that all forty one came out was was remarkable. They were yes, they were very mm. careful about how they did that, and I think that paid off. Of yeah, course, definitely, definitely. And actually, where I was focusing my intent, <laughs> I don't take responsibility. <laughs> uh, as we always say, you know, we we know that many many people will be praying and sending intention and and so on. But I have no doubt that each one of us that does that will have made a difference. And certainly that one of the, the focus for me was, a, was on that line, you know, taking a very specific focus that those who were involved in the rescue operation would be very wise uh, in, their, in their decision-making and how they approach this. And clearly they were. Mm. Your intentions mm. paid off, yes. Mm. And in December, I think we're happy to report about the release of 110 hostages that had been held in Gaza. So we know that the hostages were taken prisoner during the October 7th attack on Israel. And 78 of them that were released were Israeli women and children. And they were freed as part of a deal between Israel and Hamas. Three of them were Russian Israelis, two women and one man, not included in the deal. Um, They were also released. And five Israelis had already been released in October. So 23 Thai hostages and one Filipino were also freed as part of a separate deal between Hamas and the Thai government. So under the deal between Hamas and Israel, 180 Palestinians have been released from Israeli jails. But we know that 138 people are still being held as the Israeli-Gaza ceasefire has ended. And we, of course, pray for those 138 people that they are safely released, maybe even before the year ends, Mm. if not as the year begins. Absolutely. So much to give thanks for in a year in which many lives have been turned around by the power of intention and prayer. And we will, that our collective power, will continue to grow in its impact and reach. This is what we're suggesting as our main intention to hold between episodes this week. Not just an intention, but giving thanks. As always, we'll put this in the show notes again. We give thanks for a year in which many lives have been turned around by the power of intention and prayer. And we will, that our collective power will continue to grow in its impact and reach. Yes, our collective power will continue to grow in its impact and reach. May it be so. May it be so. And finally, another good news story to end with from this week's news. A 10-year-old boy who was born with the lower part of his arm missing received the ultimate Christmas gift this week, a high-tech bionic arm which was provided by England's National Health Service. To keep the so-called hero arm, Harry from Lancashire 
had to go through a month-long trial uh, in order to be able to prove that he can use the technology. And he only had confirmation that he could keep this wonderful gift just before Christmas. The arm was custom-made using advanced 3D printing technology and is able to read muscle movements in his forearm to create uh, intuitive bionic finger movements, the real bionic man, <laughs> bionic boy. <laughs> and the good news is it means that he can now actually really enjoy his life with his friends. So he can get involved in two-handed activities like riding a bike and go-karting. So we give thanks for the gifts of inventions that enhance lives like Harry and will for him and others who receive such gifts to be able to fully enjoy the many new opportunities that open up for them as a result. That's a great story. And it mm. just shows where technology is going and, and the possibilities that are going to be happening probably within the next 10 years, maybe even five years. Absolutely. It's exciting. And 3D printing. What, what a difference that is yes. in, in, in this sort of field. Wow. Yes. That about wraps it up for this week and for this year. Remember, you can connect with us in the Facebook group and for live intention holding in Clive's daily insight timer offerings and with me in the Labyrinth Activist Network's Zoom calls. Details of how to hook up with these are in our show notes. Thank you for listening and for sharing with us in holding intentions. We look forward to connecting again next time when we will be focusing on intention, how to create an intention and how to use an intention. So join us then. And in the meantime, thank you, go well, stay safe. And remember, we are more powerful together. Impact is presented by Ellen Vince and Clive Johnson and produced by Impact Productions. Our theme music is by Chris Collins and our logo artwork is by Auto Classic. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Audible or your favorite podcast provider. We're a non-commercial podcast dedicated to people of any faith tradition or none who yearn for healing in our troubled world. Please pass on the word so others may join us in making an impact. Thank you for listening.